Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have right now of coming into your presence. And Father, we have sensed as individuals and as a church how important this topic is. We pray that you'd help us to not only see that more clearly, but to realize what role we can have as health professionals in making a difference in the local church that we're a part of, in our communities, in our families, and beyond. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by way of uh, perspective, as we begin our time together, uh, we're going to look at three different areas today. I'm going to first look with you at some philosophical uh, issues as they relate to creation science. And the question is, uh, is creation science important? Well, I didn't ask the question. I'm just stating the fact that it is. We're going to look at that from a philosophical basis first. Then we're actually going to look at some things you may want to employ in uh, public presentations, because that's especially what this seminar is geared for. Uh, so first of all, we're going to spend actually probably the larger portion of our time talking about why I think you should be uh, excited and motivated to be involved in this subject, taking a advocacy position in your local church and your community. And uh, all of you who've registered have this CD. Uh, this CD is something that Amen is providing. There's a number of uh, organizations and individuals who have allowed us to put their PowerPoint slides on here that deal with creation science. So if you want to be involved in, in doing a creation science seminar or a talk or a sermon, these resources are here for you to use. They've been uh, granted to us to copy them freely to give out on this occasion uh, for individuals to use in their own presentations. A little bit more in the way of background is just who I am. I know some of you, but not all of you. Uh, I am a physician and a public health professional. I have uh, boards in internal medicine, and I still think I have them in preventive medicine. I need to recertify here very soon, uh, so I can tell you that here at the end of 2009. Most of what I've done in my professional career is in the lines of preventive medicine. Uh, about seven years ago, I started a consulting practice, mostly doing uh, programmatic consulting, uh, health media. I do contracted writing projects. was doing that full-time for four or five years. And a lot of what I was doing was working with uh, faith-based entities, Adventist and otherwise and got more involved with evangelism, public evangelism, and how health interfaces with that. And so three years ago, I was invited by the Northern New England Conference to scale back my work uh, with my company called Compass Health to half-time and work as a pastor half-time. So I'm employed half-time by the Northern New England Conference, uh, especially with a mandate to be involved in health evangelism. And I actually think creation science and health evangelism are very closely linked. We'll talk about that uh, at least briefly in this first of the three presentations that I have for you. And like I said, this first one is really the longer presentation. The other thing that is very important, I think, to emphasize for all of us is that we have credibility in the scientific realm, even though we might say, well, we're not basic scientists, maybe some of you are, you know, MD, PhDs, or you have a, you know, advanced training in some other discipline beside dentistry or medicine, 
the point is, in our communities, in our congregations, we are looked at as having a scientific knowledge base that uh, has credibility attached to it. So with that background, let's talk about why I believe creation science is important. And I've got a question for you as we begin, and that is, has anyone ever offered you a deal that just seemed too good to be true? Now you might say, well, I'm obviously asking the question in this section because uh, this is not the financial health section, and uh, maybe people in this audience would be more likely to have uh, faced such a scenario. But I want to actually give you a scenario about a deal that seemed too good to be true, and uh, we'll call the fellow Richard. Richard has an old vehicle. Does this look like an old vehicle to you? It's supposed to, whether it does or not, okay? So he's got this old vehicle, it's all beat up, and uh, he meets a very kind mechanic. And this mechanic tells him, you know, I can fix your whole car. I'm not only a mechanic, I do body work. I know the car is breaking down every week, but I can not only fix it mechanically, but I can totally restore this car, and I'll do it for $200. How does that sound to you? Yeah, too good to be true. And uh, like I said, we're not in the financial seminar right now, so one of you, let's say you're Richard, you decide you're going to go for it. And so you give this mechanic your vehicle, and uh, in fact, he tells you uh, after a number of weeks, not only is the car all repaired, but he's going to personally deliver it to you if you would like. And you say, well, this is, uh, come on now. Well, you say, okay, bring the car by, and then the next day as he comes by, you see pulling up into your driveway, something that looks like this. You think he delivered on his promise? Yeah, you say more than that. No, for those who are just uh, listening, you know, we've got a, a fancy sports car illustrated here. I don't know what type of car that is. Some of you are better with those things than I am. But we're talking, as we begin, about restoration. And the reason why I'm talking with you about restoration is because it's a theme in the Bible. We're talking about motivation, why we should be concerned about creation science. It's foundational to all biblical revelation. In Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 21, Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost, he calls on the people there to repent, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Now listen carefully. He says, He shall send Jesus Christ, who was before preached to you, who the heaven must receive until how long? That's right, until the times of restitution or restoration of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. What is Peter saying here is a theme of all of Revelation. I need water. What is he saying? Yes, it's the plan of restoration, the times of restoration. The Bible is speaking. The prophetic messengers are speaking about restoration. And so Peter is saying this is the focus of biblical re revelation. Do you see it there? Do you see that in Acts 3? So what does restoration really involve? What is restoration? Yeah, bringing, making things back right. It's bringing things back to their original state, their original design or purpose. So think about it. 
if the Bible is talking about a plan of restoring things to their original state, what is it talking about? It's really based on the very premise that we have in Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? That God created everything very good and that he is going to return creation to that state. So what I'm trying to help us see, first of all, that origins is not just a tangential issue. Foundational to the whole theme of the Bible is the plan of restoration. And so when we read in Genesis 1-1 about God's creation, God is the active agent in creation, and we read at the end of that chapter that he made everything how? Very good. So what I'd like to suggest to you, and I don't really need to even suggest it because we see it in our ranks as Adventists and throughout Christianity, is that most Christians today, most of those who self-identify themselves as Christians, have actually left the straightforward testimony of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, and they've accepted a view of origins that is totally human-derived. Am I on shaky ground when I'm speaking about this? No. Okay. So, growing numbers of Christians really have embraced Darwin's theory of evolution. And in fact, it's interesting, in the dialogue that takes place in the secular marketplace, we hear about people like Francis Collins. Francis Collins is a major figure, major figure in medicine in the world. I mean, he's currently the director of the National Institutes of Health. He was the director of the Human Genome Project. He's often interviewed in secular sources as far as his insights into origin. In essence, what many Christians are believing, and Dr. Collins is just that, he's a Christian, what many Christians are actually saying is that if you look at Darwin's theory of evolution, it doesn't hold water. So God must have been acting through the millions of years that evolutionary science is talking about. So instead of just saying it's a process, an undirected process, they're saying that we need to believe in theistic evolution and we can all live happily ever after. We can all you know, just smile. We can be Christians. You can be secularists. So this is a prevailing theme in Christianity today. And whether it's the Catholic Church with their pronouncements, whether it's an evangelical uh, scientist like Dr. Collins, this is a prevailing theme. And it, it of course, has uh, come into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So let's just talk about, you know, in its purest sense, what evolution really is speaking about, whether it's theistic evolution or whether it's just saying, you know, there is no God and things just evolved on their own. So this is a simple definition, if you will, of evolution. It means the production of biodiversity through descent with modification, whether through natural causes or by divine direction. So there you have your theistic evolution. Evolution Im implies monophyly, so everything coming from a single tree. You've seen those, those uh, trees. Everything started from one organism and then branched out from there, and that includes the common ancestry of humans and non-humans. Go ahead. I read a book uh, written by the society that 
Yeah, the, the problem, I have to, you have to make your comments short. What they asked me to do, because they're taping this for Audioverse, even though we could amplify it in this room, and we will try to do that um, so you can hear it, uh, try not to wax eloquent and try to keep things focused so I can repeat the question and then we can answer it. Uh, just a comment. Just go ahead and ask the question while he's getting that up and running. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, just a comment. The, the book I read was by the uh, group that got together to celebrate the centennial of Darwin mm -hmm. in 1995, and they wrote a book. What they said was evolution does not just involve the biological world. Evolution, in their minds, involves all the institutions that we have in uh, that evolution involves all the institutions we have. Everything we see is evolving. In other words, it's not just the biological world. No, exactly. What's, what's happened is, you know, the theory of evolution is the unifying worldview that the humanists have. And so in contradistinction to evolution, we have creation. Okay, so it's an act of God by personal agency. It's not just God wound up the universe uh, and, and things developed. He's bringing into existence separately diverse kinds of organisms, and it specifically implies a separate ancestry of humans. So I mean, just very basic, uh, basic definitions here. So we've just looked at Acts 3, verse 21, that God has spoken by all his holy prophets since the world began. It's a very interesting statement. And I put this up here because some of the people that we even have resources on the CD f uh, from are people who are very, uh, I would say, very narrow, even in their view of inspiration. And let me take a little bit of time, and we can dialogue about this if we need to. Some of those who you would think would be our allies in advocating creation science take a very literalistic view of inspiration in the Bible. So your Baptist, um, King James only version uh, neighbor actually is going to come to different conclusions. And, and to me, what the problem is, what the problem with this is, is if you have this view that God only inspired the King James Version, this may sound, sound strange to some of you. Is this sounding strange to some of you? But if you've de de done any evangelism or inter interface with other uh, fundamentalist Christians, evangelical Christians, they often have this concept. And what happens is then words become code words. Okay, whenever you see the word beginning, that has to mean the same as uh, Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. And, they, and what happens is instead of looking at the contextual st structure of Revelation, looking at the original languages, they make the King James Version uh, the inspired word of God, and they make, co so the world began, that means Genesis 1 verse 1. I will tell you here, in this context here, I think you can make a case that this does point us to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because the first prophetic message given is that message in Genesis 3, where the promise is given that the Lord would put enmity between the seed of the serpent, between the serpent and the seed of the woman. So I'm just giving you a little aside here. Is that making any sense? Do you hear what I'm saying? Or is, is that so tangential that I've lost most of you? 
Um, what I'm trying to do in some broad strokes is make you aware of some of the issues, some of the dialogue, and why it's important. So restoration is what we want to look at. And here's the question then, if we really believe in this plan of restoration, are we believing then, if, if we're going to take the theistic evolutionary view, what is the Bible talking about then? What is it talking about? Is it talking about returning the earth to some early state of uh, evolutionary development? You, you, you see the, the, the logical disconnect. Whatever you look in the scriptures, you look at these scriptural teaching, they're based on the fact that Genesis 1 and 2 is a literal account of creation. So, you, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, but you can go throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament. It's very clear that Bible writers, when they were writing about what God was going to restore, he was speaking about restoring the Eden state. They didn't look at Eden as some fictional uh, status. Whether it's Isaiah in the Old Testament, whether it's Peter, and I'm just putting up these texts, Isaiah 65, for the benefit of those listening. Um, we're putting these up because we're familiar with these. And the scriptures make it very clear that God's plan of restoration involves bringing the earth back to its original created state and that that created state was very good. Indeed, it was perfect. This is part of the foundation, I believe, for a health message. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail later. So if you want to be on the cutting edge as far as a scriptural basis for health, you cannot throw out the original creation account. You can't say that things just evolved. This undermines a lot of the biblical basis for creation. Now, in stark contrast, let me, oh, this is interesting. The fact that I have duplicate slides up here. I'll give you a little, tell you a little story here. Um, my first uh, creation science seminar I gave earlier this year. And uh, we were doing it, some of you heard in a previous session, we were doing it to try to lead up, get more interest in the community for a big uh, evangelistic series, big, uh, as, far, as big as a small church can offer. And so we advertised on Christian radio that we were doing this creation science seminar. And uh, my wife, who's up here in front, Sonia, will attest to probably how many times I said, whatever got in my mind to do something like this. Because, um, you know, we got this thing all advertised and I, I mean, I'd never done it before. And you always, I tend to be a fairly optimistic person. And uh, my wife says, if I say something's going to take an hour, she says, what do you say, triple it? And it's usually accurate. Two or three, Two or three times. So, uh, you know, here I had all this idea of, well, all that I was going to get done to be ready for this series. And, uh, and I'm the sole presenter. Five, we're doing two meetings on Friday night. We're, we canceled the regular church service. We're doing several meetings Sabbath morning. We're having a, a dinner for the visit, you know, for everyone who comes. And then we're doing uh, another uh, meeting in the afternoon, a question and answer session. I'm going like, whatever got in me to do this? But I used a lot from other people that were willing to share with me. And a lot of those resources are on this CD. Some of them I don't agree with uh, in every position they take, but people have pulled together a lot of stuff, and we'll talk about some of them as we go through our, uh, our session together. So 
When I presented that, everything was not a polished presentation. In fact, the Lord rebuked me many years ago. I was invited to preach many years ago. And I said, I just don't have time to prepare to preach. I can't preach this Sabbath. And uh, I came to the church service that Sabbath. And I can't tell you that I remember exactly what happened. But I thought it was just terrible, whatever happened. I, I, don't, I don't know what happened. If no one showed, I, all I have this memory of is that the Lord rebuked me. He said, the reason why this happened is you were supposed to preach. They asked you to preach and you didn't do it. And uh, some of you may not feel the same way. I'm not saying you have to, but don't be afraid to, to speak when you don't have time to get everything all lined up. And you say, well, that's crazy because you'll look like a fool and, you know, people in the community will see it or people in the church will see it. If the Lord's opening the door for you to do something, step out and do it. Can I encourage you that way? Is that okay? And he's going to provide. I've seen it time and time again. So, that, so you see some extra slides there? I'm going to tell you. I'll just be honest with you. I wish I had more time to prepare for this meeting today. Okay? If I had waited until it was all completed, maybe it would be next year, but if it was next year, there'd be a bunch of other more pressing things that would have come up until uh, shortly before. Okay? We're talking about philosophical dangers of evolution. The first one is it contradicts the biblical theme of restoration. Here's the second one, it divides the church. And I don't need to tell you that as Seventh-day Adventists that this theme is dividing our church. I was just speaking with someone who said that Virtually all of the General Conference vice presidents were recently together with the president, Dr. Jan Paulson, and had really meeting with other leaders in the church and North American division and really wanting to take a very strong position on the literal creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. But this is a subject that is dividing our church today. And I would like to suggest to you that it has fueled a lack of humility in the Christian church. And many of the times, one of the presenters who um, his ministry graciously allowed us to uh, share his materials here is someone by the name of uh, Kent Hovind. How many of you know of Kent Hovind? Uh, some of you may be rolling your eyes. I don't know. Um, Kent Hovind is a, uh, a Baptist who's um, still in prison. Um, and uh, don't be too smug because, as best I can tell, he may be in prison for nothing more than Adventist ministries have done. It had to do with how he was running his ministry and thinking he was avoiding taxes when he really wasn't. But he made a lot of enemies. Um, you can listen to his presentations. He's a very colorful creation science speaker. Uh, I first learned about him when I was doing an evangelistic series, and some of the Baptists who were attending my meetings shared some of uh, Kent Hovind's CDs with us. But he's, um, he consistently uh, puts down people who believe in evolution, like they're stupid, um, idiotic, and this is a common theme in Christian churches and in creation science meetings. And uh, no matter how clear the issues may be to you, this is not the way to deal with creation science in our churches, okay? So it has fueled a lot of the rancor in this whole uh, discipline. And I would just point you back to some of these fundamental statements in the scriptures in Micah 6, 8. He showed you, O oh man, what is good? What does the Lord desire of you? What is it? 
Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Can we walk humbly with God as we deal with creation science and origins? We need to. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, our attention has already been focused on this during these meetings. God is speaking about a condition. Very interesting. He's speaking about healing his people. And the condition for that is what? One of the conditions is humility. So if we're, the purpose of this seminar here today is not to give you more ammunition so you can go back and show those stupid evolutionists in your church how wrong they are. Okay, that's not the point. So there's an abundance of inhumility, or maybe we should say pride, on both sides of this issue. So whether you're talking about creation or evolution, whether you call it intelligent design or naturalism, and by the way, biblical view of creation does not necessarily imply intelligent design. Uh, People that uh, believe in theistic evolution also believe in intelligent design, often. So look at some of the incivility. Here's the uh, school teacher. It says, Darwin report due. I know you can read, but remember, this is being recorded. And she says to the young student, I grant you evolution was a theory to begin with, but it evolved into a fact a long time ago. So uh, what are the implications of a statement like that? You see a cartoon like that. There's some implications. And uh, what do we call people who don't accept facts? Yeah, stubborn, stupid. I mean, with all these, these words that describe them. So if evolution's a fact and you're not accepting it, what's the problem? How do you like this quote from Time magazine? Charles Darwin didn't want to uh, murder God as he once put it, but he did. What does that imply? It, what it implies is this whole concept of evolutionary science, as Jim illustrated, basically erodes the whole foundation for the Christian faith. Now, listen to uh, Dr. Roth's book is excellent, Origins Linking Science and Scripture. It's put out, I think it's a Review and Herald that publishes that. Um, here's, he's a, a scientist. He's attended, uh, used to head up the Geoscience Research Institute. Um, he's attended many scientific meetings, and here's some of the things he's heard. Creationism is scientific prostitution. What do you think? Is this a good way to develop rapport between those who may see origins differently? What do you think? How about this one? Creationists intentionally and cynically mislead well-intentioned citizens and are as crooked as a $3 bill. Creationism as science, quote, represents political and religious mischief, and creationists offer erroneous pseudoscience they pass off as scholarship. But uh, creationists are not immune to this. This is actually one of uh, Kent Hovind's illustrations. I'm not sure if it uh, actually ended up on your CD or not. But I don't know if you see what's happening here. Um, this is Darwin's silly soap. And you see what's happening. It's supposedly taking someone's brains away. And uh, what does that imply? Okay? Are, are we, you, you see this whole issue is something that we need to talk 
intelligently about. We don't need to be saying things like this. These are creationist uh, statements. Like many atheistic evolutionists, your claim is yet another spurious attempt to discredit the Bible and defend your atheistic faith, faith and evolutionism. Maybe the degrees you have aren't worth the paper on which they're written. Or evolutionists being accused of employing outdated and dishonest argument. What I'd like to suggest to you is many evolutionists, whether they take the name of, creation, of, of Christian or not, are honest people. So my premise is this. There is much scientific evidence that seems to support an evolutionary worldview. So evolutionists are not inherently either idiots or dishonest. Is that pretty clear? There is scientific evidence, however, that seems to support a creationistic worldview. I think that evidence is stronger. And creationists inherently are neither idiots nor dishonest. So one of the things I believe we have to do, whether you're doing things in public, whether you're talking with people in private, we have to restore some civility in the dialogue. Okay? So why do non-believers then have problems with creationism? What do, what do they see as problems with... Why? Why is it a problem for them? Okay. They have to admit a creator. And in defense of those atheistic, agnostic evolutionists, I was one of them at one time in my life, so I can, you know, relate to this. Many of them have either rejected God or at least questioned his existence for the very same reasons I did. And what, what are those reasons? Why did I question God's existence? Things didn't make sense. Yeah, bad things happened, you know, sin and suffering. Or the religious background that you had was not intellectually compelling. I mean, the doctrine of hell is one that we often talk about. You know, we, we say there's a loving God that burns people forever and ever. The, the very interesting thing about all this is I think there are many people that have rejected God that the Seventh-day Adventist message, the biblical message that God has given to us as a people is part of the solution to addressing their evolutionistic uh, mindset. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes because the way to address that is not by telling them they're wrong as evolutionists and try to argue with, with science alone because there's evidence that supports both worldviews. You need to look at some of the undergirding evidences for belief. So, when people hear about a God who's not worthy to worship, which I would suggest to you is the God that most churches reveal and that most Christians demonstrate. You walked up to the average educated secularist and you say, tell me the first three things that come into your mind when you hear the word Christian. What kind of things are they going to tell you? I'm not talking about Bible Belt. I'm talking, you know, go to New York City and, and uh, what are they going to tell you? What kind of things are going to come into their minds? Hypocrisy. What else? No fun. Narrow-minded, bigots, trying to shove their ideas down people's throats. Okay? These are the things that I hear when I talk with people. Okay? They're not about how loving and compassionate they are. We like to believe ourselves that way, and you know, hopefully by God's grace we are. But the Christian world, I mean, how does Islam view Christians? I mean, we, just, we can go on and on. And why is it? Because even well-meaning Christians have misrepresented God's nature and his character. So really what we're calling ourselves back to as we look at this, I, I, 
I want to just let you know, when I give a creation science seminar, I don't spend a lot of time with this, okay? I'm doing it in this setting because I think we need to have this kind of dialogue if you're going to be involved in working with your communities, working with your churches. But if you start talking like this, just like some of you are asleep, you'll lose your audiences because they're not really interested in the philosophy. They're interested in, you know, all the science and the slides with the fossils. And, you know, we have a lot of that on your CD, and I'll show you some of those and how I use it. But I'm trying to help you see the basis for why we need to be passionate as health professionals using the credibility we have in our communities and in our churches to take a public stand on this subject. Now, why do believers have problems? Look at why do believers have problems with creationism? What am I talking about here? Okay, anti-science. You see, if you go up, I went to a secular college, started at a secular college before I'd ever heard of Seventh-day Adventists, and uh, creation science was not what won me to Christ and the Seventh-day Adventist church. We tend to think it's an evangelistic tool. I use it as an evangelistic tool because you can attract a Christian audience. I don't think that there's a lot of ability in just doing a creation seminar to win an evolutionist, a secularist. I think it helps ground the Christians and attracts to your church or your venue, especially we advertise, when we do a creation seminar, we advertise it to Christians. Now, I think there's ways you could use it to reach seculars, but I don't think, and we're going to look at Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and some very interesting reasons why I don't think this is the optimal approach. But believers have problems with creationism. If you do something in your church on creation science, we just did this in my local church within the last few months, I was shocked by the kind of responses I got from longtime Seventh-day Adventists in the church, the, the kind of, I mean, people that had grown up in the church. They're, they're saying like, well, really? You mean the, things haven't evolved over millions and millions of years? I mean, it's just like, I mean, it was amazing to me. So you may think everyone's sitting around, you're singing the same hymns or the praise songs or whatever they're using in your church, but hey, we have a long way to go as a church on grounding ourselves in this whole subject. Here's a story I like to share when I'm doing a creation science seminar. It's a story from a distant land. And it's a story about Sue. Sue was a young, idealistic teacher. And she wanted to go to a third world country and make a difference there and educate the, uh, the children in an area where they had, did not have access to good uh, educational resources. And so Sue went overseas to this distant place, which will remain unnamed. And while Sue was there, she started hearing some very disturbing things about the community she had recently moved to. One day, one of the children came and they said, my father just died. An elephant killed him. A few days later, one of the children's pets disappeared. It had been trampled by an elephant. A while later, Sue, who had brought books with her, one of the books vanished. Believe it or not, she learned an elephant had actually taken the book out of the girl's home. This went on for a number of weeks. And one day, Sue went to a, a larger city some distance from where she was teaching. 
and she was telling the shopkeeper, you know, it, it was strange to her. She hadn't seen any elephants, but there were all kinds of things in that village. These elephants were causing all kinds of problems. And the shopkeeper just started laughing and laughing and laughing. He said, don't you know, there's no elephant. There haven't been elephants in that area for 50, 60, 70 years. You see, when the people don't know, what, when something happens that they can't explain, they say the elephants did it. Oh, what, do you, what do you think that did for a teacher like Sue? I mean, she just got a mission in mind. She, got, she, she suddenly had a new purpose, a new thing that she had to teach her students about. And so over the course of the next 5, 10, 15 years, every student that went through that school, they started learning things like, you know, when the dog uh, ate the paper or when the, they couldn't find something or someone died, they said, Dad got sick and died. No, no longer were they saying an elephant did it. You see? And so, uh, you know, something bad happened that they couldn't explain, so we don't know why. But no more. Sue was so pleased when she looked back on it. No longer were the people talking about elephants causing problems in their village. There came a day, though, when a bloody corpse was seen outside the village. And uh, the villagers all went out there to look. It apparently happened the night before. And they couldn't figure out what had happened to this individual. Had he been beaten? They started questioning other villagers, looked around. They were just perplexed. Why was this person beaten, looks like he was stabbed, whatever, laying there just outside their village? After a number of hours of deliberating, a stranger from the municipality overseeing that area came into the village and he said, who was it that was gored by the elephant? They said, gored by an elephant? Yeah, I mean, there's elephant tracks there and uh, what had happened? What had happened? Here's the point. If, it, if you exclude the true cause from consideration, no amount of science can provide a correct etiologic answer. Why do I tell you this story and why do I tell it when I do a creation science seminar? I want to look with you at just a few definitions to make this very clear. You see, when we talk about science, we're talking about why there's this conflict. When we talk about science, we need to define our terms. And you can go to Webster's Dictionary and you'll find a definition like this for science, a systematized knowledge derived from observation, study, etc. Well, that definition, you know, that permits a discussion about creation science, right? Fits into that definition. But if you look in other places, we won't read this whole definition. Let's just look at this uh, definition three in that one. It says, science is the systematic study of the universe. Sounds pretty similar. With the goal of developing explanations of causal mechanisms without reference to non-material or supernatural causes. How do you like that definition of science? Exactly. That definition excludes God from the equation. 
And so just like that story, if you say elephants don't do anything, you can't use elephants to explain anything. This is foolishness. Well, then when an elephant comes and does something, are you going to be able to see it? No. So what I'm trying to help us see is the mindset that our people are reared in. If you were not raised in Seventh-day Adventist educational system like I was, you were reared in a mindset through television, through media, through schools, where creation science is an oxymoron. You can't put the two together because what? You can't. It's not science. So if you exclude the possibility of God, then science, I would suggest to you, is not honestly looking at all options when it comes to origin. So this is, I think, a compelling argument to at least introduce if you're talking with someone who is an atheist or agnostic. Are they really being open? They may have rejected God for various reasons, but is that an honest way to assess the evidence? Okay, there's some corollaries, and then we're going to move on to our next point. One is you can find plenty of foolish things said by creationists. And hopefully uh, you and I won't be among those who say foolish things, but we probably will at some point or another. Second one is you can find plenty of foolish things said by evolutionists. And attacking the weakest arguments of an absent opponent is not a sign of great intellectual ability. Okay? And this is what we typically do in Christian circles. We find the stupidest things anyone who believes in evolution has said, and we ridicule that. And then how, do, how does that help us? How does it help our kids? How does it help our church members when they're exposed to more compelling uh, arguments. If you take it a step further, if you think the question of origins is a slam dunk case, then I would say you just haven't looked at the opposing perspective very closely. So what's the solution then? Because we said our second concern is it's causing disunion in the church. How do you unite the church over origins issues? Well, some are saying we need to call a truce. Um, this is actually from not a Christian uh, publication, the Smithsonian uh, publication. They have an um, electronic publication, the gist. I think it's just electronic. But the title was this last year, Science to Religion, Can't We All Just Get Along? Can't We All Just Get Along? Well, the problem with this is we can still be humble and advocate truth about a creator God and do it with scientific integrity. We don't have to say it doesn't matter what you think. And this is really that postmodern answer that we're employing more and more in our church. We're saying, well, it really doesn't matter as long as you, you know, we worship the same God or it does. It matters hugely and we're going to look at more of the reasons for it. So many are agnostics because they've never examined carefully the Creator God as revealed in the Bible. I believe that. And I also believe that many Seventh-day Adventists have embraced evolutionary science because of a similar lack of knowledge of God's revealed Word. So, it's good. It's good that Christians are calling for civility, but you can't have a truce when the other side is gearing up for a more aggressive battle, right? 
That's what's going on. I mean, we, we see it all around us, and these atheistic attacks are heating up. Uh, we could look at all kinds of uh, background into this. I'm not going to do that, but I just want to remind you that militant atheism is on the rise. It doesn't mean that these people are dishonest, but they're very selective in what they're talking about. They don't talk about all the terrible things that atheists have done in history, like Hitler or Stalin. Um, so how do we come together on this? We come together based on God's word, okay? We focus on God's word, we study together, we accept people where they're at, but we don't compromise truth. So let's look more at these philosophical dangers. And the next one is that evolution obscures the evidence of God's existence. So the Bible claims to deal with ultimate origins. We often quote Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But there's a lot more in Scripture that emphasizes this. Throughout the New and Old Testament, Psalm 90, verse 2, for example, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What does this say about God as creator? Is it clear? Yeah, it's the, see, what the, what the liberal Christian community will tell you is that Genesis 1 and 2 is just figurative. You know, it's just allegorical. It's just, you know, God was just trying to make a point that uh, there is a God and that we're here because of him. But none of the other Bible writers subscribe to that. They all actually believe in a God who by his personal agency created the earth. Psalm 93, the Lord is king. He's robed in majesty. What? He's from everlasting. Even the name of God. What is the name of God? Yahweh. I am that I am. The self-existent one. In the New Testament, you can read John 1, Hebrews 1, Revelation 1. For by him, Christ, this is Colossians, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. I think I've quoted that correctly. You can check me out. The Bible, then, does seem to recognize, though, the value of non-biblical arguments for God's existence. That's Romans, actually. Um, Romans 1, 18 through 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. Why does the Bible make this statement? It's saying one of the compelling arguments for who God is is what we observe in nature. It's not just scriptural revelation. It's not just the lives of Christians. It should be a testimony to that. But it's actually creation is a witness to the true God. So God's primary means, I'd like to suggest to you, though, of converting the atheist or agnostic does not involve a debate over origins. And I want to take you through, as I mentioned to you, uh, an insight from the book of Isaiah. And this is something I use as a segue to an evangelistic series. Okay, so you're doing a creation science seminar in your church. Uh, or you're doing it in a public meeting place. Many Christians are there, and they've come to hear about creation science. But many of them have come to get ammunition to use against their evolutionist friends. And so to me, this is a very important theme, and I want you to see this fairly clearly. In the book of Isaiah, God seeks in many places in that book to demonstrate he's the only true God. 
He repeatedly in Isaiah asserts that he's the creator, but he doesn't seem to expect that these statements, these assertions of his creatorship would be accepted as truth by the skeptic. He gives two other lines of proof God does through the inspired pen of Isaiah as to why he should be worshipped above any other false god. One of those other ways is through redemption. In Isaiah 44, we read this, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee, thus says the Lord thy Redeemer. I am the Lord that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by, itself, by myself. Here there's a connection between what? Redemption and creation. So over and over again, you can see in the book of Isaiah that God calls his people to acknowledge him not only as being creator, but as being redeemer. And so he's demonstrating who he is, his divinity, not just by something in the distant past, but by a present experience. The other of these two lines of proof is that of prophecy. And so in Isaiah 46, we read, again, these, these streams coming together. And remember, you're using this, or I'm using it, in my creation science seminar because I want to invite the people the next week to an evangelistic series. So look at this, Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old, for I'm God. There's none other. I'm God. There's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. So here God is speaking about his prophetic word, how there's no one like him. He's unique. He is divine. Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I'm the first, I'm the last. Beside me there's no God. And who is I shall call and declare it? Set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show unto them. I am the Lord that makes all things. I stretch forth the heavens. I spread abroad the earth. I frustrate the tokens of liars, make diviners mad, turn wise men backward and make their knowledge foolish. I confirm the words of my servant, God is saying. He performs the counsel of his messengers. He says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. The cities of Judah, you'll be built. And then this prophecy in Isaiah 44 of Cyrus, just continuing on about the drying up of the rivers and Cyrus. What is going on here? God's putting these three streams of thought together, that he's the creator, he's the redeemer, and he is the God who speaks authoritatively through prophecy. And so what, what I do when I'm presenting a seminar like this, I say, look it, if you've come here to try to help your non-believers see that the God of the Bible is true, creation science can be helpful. But the whole picture really is helping them to see God in the prophetic word as the authoritative, the, the God, the inerrant God. So Bible prophecy, and then to see God as redeemer. So, where should you start? I would suggest, and I'd say this in a public meeting, start with Bible prophecy as a means of reaching your friends uh, with the truth of who God is. Then help them to trust in this saving God of the Bible. So what are we doing here? We, what we're telling them then is next week, 
And I, I'm up front with them. I say, I don't like to do a creation seminar unless I know there's something going on in the community that's going to build on these other two lines. And we've got a wonderful series coming up that's going to be talking about Christ and his saving power from the context of Bible prophecy. So you see what you're doing is you're, of course, not only giving them the creation science message, but you're making that bridge to the evangelistic meetings you're going to be having. And so I tell them, you know, I say, it's coming, you know, right here in this location, we've got the Bible prophecy meetings coming up. And it's not something that I apologize about. I say, that's why I'm doing the seminar. It's with that in mind, because that completes what we need as Christians to be a powerful witness in this day and age. So we've talked about three things. The fourth reason why we need to be interested in this subject, why we need to be advocating for the biblical position, is evolution undermines the reality of Christ's saving work. It actually undermines the connection between sin and death. Think about it. And many honest, theistic evolutionists acknowledge that they have this disconnect. Because uh, how do you put Christ as the one dying for the sins of the world if, how do you say that the wages of sin is death and at the same time said there was, sin for million, there was death for millions and millions of years before sin? You see the problem. Um, this is from uh, the book that Dr. Baldwin edited, uh, Creation, uh, Creation Catastrophe. Something like that. Do any of you know what book I'm talking about? Have you seen this diagram? Create something. Creation, Cal, creation, Calvary, and Catastrophe. Something like that. Um, but uh, he has some uh, of these illustrations there in the book. I think these are all on your, uh, on your CD as well. And the point he makes is if you believe in the conventional interpretation of the geologic column, you have death before human sin, and so there's no causal connection between sin and death. And basically, then how can you say Christ is dying to pay the wages of sin? Do you see how that's a disconnect? And then what did he really die for? What did he do? Just to show his love for us? The, the Bible teaches something different. Yes, it does show his love for us powerfully, but it's more than that. If you believe that the fossil record was deposited by the flood, then actually the flood, the global flood, is a unifying concept in actually helping us to see that these fossil layers formed by the flood preserve this connection between sin and death. There's a recent creation in six literal days Sin came into that experience because of the choice of Adam and Eve, and Christ's atonement is preserved. Okay? You could also use other arguments in this context, the argument for morality. Why do cultures all over have the same basic standards of morality? Why do cultures believe that adultery is bad or that murder is bad? Often that could be seen as an extension of this concept. And uh, the last uh, concept to, to mention is the Bible continually links Christ's creative power with his recreative power. So as we're speaking about this connection between sin and death and the atonement, really, you undermine, create, the, the whole New Testament is based on this premise that God is creator, he can create, he can recreate. And that's uh, what happens. We become new creatures when we come to Christ. 
So if God doesn't have the power to create physical things, how can he create new hearts? Do you see where that disconnect is? Okay, let me go on to the fifth point. And we're going to finish this up in about 10 minutes and, uh, and then go on to other material that you probably are actually more interested in. This fifth point is that evolution suggests that God is really not trustworthy. And in essence, then, even does away with any of the statements of Jesus. How can you believe that, why should you believe that Jesus, when he said, I will come again, was telling a truth, a literal truth, if when he spoke about creation, he was just speaking figuratively? Do you see? So you undermine the whole foundations of revelation, and it's basically a question about trusting biblical revelation. Let's just look at an end-time message now, because I believe that the understanding, a true understanding of creation is actually the undergirding for the whole Adventist message. Revelation 14, you're all familiar with, but remember, the context of Revelation 14 is Christ's imminent coming. You read to the end of the chapter, and you see it speaking about the reaping of the harvest. That's the context of the three angels' messages. And when you look at that first angel's message, by the way, biblical scholars who have looked at the structure of the book of Revelation, how many of you know the term that's often used to describe the structure of the book of Revelation? Yeah, chiastic structure. And for those of you who aren't familiar with a chiastic structure, chiastic structure is based on the Greek letter chi, which is like an X. And just like an X, if you come at it from either direction, comes to a central point in the middle, that's what a chiastic structure does. So the, in English uh, literature, where is the high point of a book, typically? It's at the end. But in a chiastic structure, the high point, the focal point of a work is where? It's in the middle. And so scholars, even non-Adventist scholars who've looked at the book of Revelation, have seen in it a chiastic structure. And the center of the book of Revelation is actually the first angel's message. Um, Dr. Pauline, if you want to read about this, John Pauline has written about this. Some of you know him from Loma Linda now. But this focal message about the eternal gospel, and what is the call that goes out? Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who did what? Who made the heaven, earth, the sea, and the springs of water. What is that a quote of, almost a direct quote? Exodus 20. And the only difference is Exodus 20 speaks about what? The heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. In Revelation, it says the springs of water or the fountains of waters. What do you think the significance of that is? Yeah, the flood. That language is language that's reminiscent of the flood. You know, the fountains of the great deep bursting forth. So in the center of the book of Revelation, this end time message is calling on people to worship the God of creation, and it seems to suggest that that creation message is not complete without talking about a worldwide uh, global flood. Very interesting, isn't it? And so this statement of our origins is being quoted, 
and it's at the heart of the message, not only at the heart of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath commandment, but it's at the heart of the book of Revelation. So really, the truth of God's literal six-day creation is foundational to God's commandments. It's foundational to our prophetic understanding of who we are as a people. And so God, I believe, is raising up witnesses today to defend the six-day, six-literal-day creation account. Last thing I want to mention, and I'll highlight one other thing afterward, but the last thing I'll spend any time with is how a belief in evolution erodes the foundation for our health message. We've talked about this battle that's, uh, that's raging, and I want to suggest to you that really the foundation for health in the Bible is laid in Genesis. So God has a health program in Genesis. Some of you have, have preached or have presented God's natural remedies from the perspective of Genesis 1 and 2. How many of you have done that? Any of you? None of you? Some of you? A few of you? Yeah. You can, go, you can look at Genesis 1 and 2, and you find, what do you find there? You find, you know, nutrition. You find exercise, right? You find pure water, sunshine. I mean, all these elements that we talk about, they're all there in Genesis. But it's really based on two premises, right? That God intended humans to live forever, and that he provided everything in that garden necessary to foster that eternal life. Right? So if you, believe, if you read Genesis, this is all implied in the account. Right? God wouldn't give them an environment that was designed to kill them if they were to live forever. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful background if you want to give a spiritual talk that talks about natural therapies and lifestyle medicine. So if you take away the historicity of Genesis 1 and 11, let me look at another aspect of this. Not only do you remove the foundations for the biblical message of health, I would suggest to you, you remove the underpinnings of God's optimal lifestyle. You see, how can people adopt the health message? Is it just by working hard enough? You know, ultimately there's things in all our lives that we can't control, right? Isn't that true? There's habits that are so entrenched that on our own we can't change them. I mean, that's, that's my perspective. And uh, sure, you can talk with the atheists, you can do a stop smoking program, and some atheists will stop smoking. That doesn't mean that God didn't help them stop, but they say, I never acknowledged God, and I got victory over smoking. But there are certain things that we cannot change without God's power, clearly, and uh, certain things that we have to overtly, you say we can't do anything without God's power, of course, but you understand the point I'm trying to make. Without acknowledging his power in our life, we have to come to him, uh, certain areas in our life. So Genesis 1 to 11, you see, the liberal higher critics would say, look at, we're being freed from all this, uh, you know, historical uh, human thought. God used it, but it's not really literal. What it does, if you do away with Genesis 1 to 11, it actually leaves us with a human works-based health message. You see, here's the point. If we don't have a loving God who created us out of love, but had to work through eons of death and suffering of evolution, do you see what that says then about how we need to get ahead? What is, what is it saying? How do organisms get ahead? How do humans get ahead? We just work at it harder, right? 
The ones that are the strongest, they will survive. You know, if you're too weak, that's your own problem. So I'm trying to, to help us see that this is not just something that we can just say, well, look it, it's interesting dialogue in the Adventist church, but I don't have to do anything with it because I'm not a, a geologist. You know, I don't understand all these arguments. Um, the God who created is the God who empowers us to live a holy and healthy life. He's the God who saves. He's the God who speaks authoritatively in his word. So, evolution, every man for himself, the conservative view, the literal view of inspiration. God is not showing us a path of legalism, but it's true freedom in Christ. An understanding of the beginnings it upholds, the law, the lawgiver, and the power of that lawgiver to help us fulfill everything he asks. You see, if you have a loving God who gives you a law, that loving God, it is in, it's implicit that he's committed to help you achieve all that he's asked. Okay, I wanted to take a little bit of time because we've talked mostly about philosophy. We're going to talk about things on the DVD and I'll give you some uh, ideas on what you can do in a creation science seminar. A couple of other quick presentations for you in our uh, uh, 50 minutes or whatever that we have remaining. But uh, at this point, any reaction to what we've been talking about, any questions, any things uh, that you want to share at this point, this juncture? Go ahead. We'll give them the mic, and uh, maybe I should even pass this around to you, because some of you guys are going to have, is, if it's, is it a question or a statement? Okay. I, um, in terms of the great controversy, I just read a Roger Morneau's A Trip into the Supernatural. And what was interesting is um, he was involved with satanic worship. Um, and the demons and Satan referred to God. How would you, what would you guess that they called him? Tell the, us. The creator. Okay. That was their title for him. But um, he goes on to say that the high priest of the satanic temple that he was involved with told him of the largest council. Okay, thanks. Of the largest council that uh, Satan and his angels had held at the beginning of the 18th century. And their three end-time strategies were, one, to convince humans that Satan and his angels did not exist, two, hypnotism, and three, the theory of evolution. And I just thought that was interesting that the big guns of Satan at the end of time, uh, one of those is evolution. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, when you look at it, it, it really does undermine the last day message God has given to his people. And I, I don't have time to flesh this out for you, but I would challenge you with this. And that is, the mission of God's last day people has sometimes been described as the Elijah message. And what I would suggest to you, what Elijah was doing, he was actually calling people uh, back to God's Genesis program. And if you look at all the reforms, if you look at the Exodus, the Exodus was really calling people back to the Genesis lifestyle. Um, Elijah does the same thing, and I, these are just quick notes, but um, you say, well, is there a baptism that Elijah is associated with? There has to be with the Old Testament Elijah, because who is the New Testament Elijah? 
John the Baptist. Well, what kind of baptism was there in Elijah's day? I mean, you could it, it, look at this. I mean, there was a number of baptism, baptism by fire at Mount Carmel and, and rain that followed. I mean, there's different dimensions to this. But the Elijah message, the reform message, God calling the, the message that prepares the way for the coming king is a message that includes the Sabbath, which is intrinsically tied to God creating in six literal days. I mean, you, you can't remove that. So you can't say, it, you know, things were created over eons and eons of time. And uh, the language of Genesis is so compellingly clear. Um, Hassel, uh, not Michael, but his father, Gerhard, um, has written one of the most exhaustive papers I've ever read on the theological background for why you, you cannot, I mean, just exa example after example from the Hebrew why you cannot take any other position with Genesis 1 than saying it, they are literal 24-hour days. I mean, most of us say, well, we know the evening and the morning, that's got to be a 24-hour day. But the Hebrew is just so clear, you can't say it's, it's eons of time. Okay? Um, I, I've been amazed at how in so many other places now, there's the Creation Science Museum in Kentucky. Uh, Ken Ham has done so much work and has a magazine out and all kinds of lectures and things. And when I read some of the things that he writes about, it's a huge battle. Yeah, it is a huge battle. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Ken Ham and his ministry, Answers in Genesis, because one of his colleagues there is Mike Riddle. Um, Mike has allowed us to put all of his uh, presentations on this, I mean, all that I had access to. He gave me some uh, sources where he has posted um, different PowerPoints. So all his presentations are on here, things dealing with, he has one that, pretty nice one dealing with radiometric dating, you know, things to explain it to lay people and just so you don't have to do so much work. You have the resources here and you can look through that. Uh, we've got another uh, point over here. So we're trying to keep all these microphones circulating. I think one reason that people resist the um, creationist view is that it implies moral responsibility. Oh no, this is an excellent point. This is an excellent point. Um, yes, the, the whole mindset that we can just do whatever we please, uh, that is removed by the whole evolutionary uh, framework. If you guys see that I'm not doing well with keeping this in front of me, too, when we're speaking here, you let me know. I have a comment and a question. Um, you've already alluded to this, but if someone were to subscribe to the theistic evolutionary theory, um, they have to, in essence, accept that the process of evolution, which is natural selection, is part of God's will. And that process involves death and destruction and all that. And so that further um, raises the question, can God be trusted if he would allow such things to happen? In fact, not only allow, but include it as part of his plan. Uh, and my question is, um, when speaking to someone who is an atheist and won't even allow the supernatural into his, um, into his thought processes, how do you begin to introduce the concept of a creator God when they won't even allow him into the picture in the first place? Well, that's why I'm suggesting that, uh, I'll give you an example. I can't tell you that anything ever uh, really came of it, but I used to work in a, um, uh, I, I did some work with a research group in Manhattan. I was actually kind of a work study 
arrangement, large um, preventive medicine research group. And one of the other investigators who was there was a Jewish fellow. We got to be pretty good friends. And however, I don't know how this all started, but one of the things we would often talk about was creation science. He was an evolutionist, and he was at the time always, you know, bringing me the latest thing that Stephen Jay Gould had written before he uh, passed away. And uh, so we, we would have dialogue. And he, I think it was more that, that he was kind of intrigued. I mean, he was honest, I think, but he was intrigued that someone who I guess he thought I was somewhat intelligent would actually believe this. I th think a lot of people in the secular world, they, because uh, I know he respected me as a, um, so we were doing uh, preventive medicine research, but he respected me in that sphere. So I think uh, for some people, if they don't have contact with with Christians, they're they're actually inquisitive um, to to be open to hear some of the arguments of creation science. And you'll hear testimonies of people who are evolutionists. Um, by the way, I should mention this to you. If you're not familiar with Illustra Media, uh, Illustra Media produces creation science DVDs, Illustra Media. And uh, they have, uh, one of them, they interview a number of evolutionists who have become creationists because of scientific questions, where questions were raised in a classroom or by other colleagues that they couldn't explain. So it's, it's not that, um, that they went to a seminar and were converted, but just raising the questions. I'm not saying there's no value for doing that, because seeing the disconnect. And even for a Christian who believes in theistic evolution, to help that individual see the disconnect between biblical revelation and the position they take, if they're honest, that's going to cause some angst. And they're going to have to say, you know, why, how can I harmonize this? So, so God does work that way as well. Okay. Um, one more comment, and then I'm going to uh, get ready for the next. I'm going to, I'll, I'm trying to decide. Why don't you come up with, well, come up with me, Jim. Um, so that way I can hold this mic in front of you while I'm changing the, the presentation. If you come real close to me. Should we... Should we change the word from creationism to to something else like creation or something else? Because that ism word seems to indicate a philosophy that's not believable, like communism or some other isms, you know, all these isms. And I think creationism has been stuck there with this ism at the end of it, that perhaps if you remove that, it might be a better word. Well, of course, uh, appreciate your comment. Of course, that's what some have tried to do with intelligent design. But intelligent design does not uh, necessarily reject the millions of years uh, concerns. And it does not uh, necessarily uh, vindicate, if you will, or support Genesis 1. So yes, you could take, use other terms, and people have done that. Um, and I never call it creationism. I always say creation science. So yes, but I think that's something to be, be aware of. So what I'm going to look with you now in the last, uh, in the time we have remaining, are two presentations that you could do yourself uh, based on material on the, the CD. Um, if you want, actually, what I show here, I can, can um, help you with that, too, because the things I'm showing you are not on the CD. 
But nine reasons why you can have confidence in the biblical creation account. This is more what you'd present in a creation science seminar. You wouldn't present you know, an hour on philosophy. I actually did that the first creation seminar I did, and that's not what people really wanted to hear. So, um, but I think it's important for us to, to be cognizant of that and be aware of it. This is the kind of stuff they want to hear. You know Sean Pittman, um, a fellow uh, physician. His website, Detecting Design. How many of you have been to his website? Okay, you, you need to go to his website. I mean, he's got all kinds of uh, excellent material there. There's other organizations. His contact information is on the CD. He allowed us to uh, use his, put his PowerPoints on there. Um, Geoscience Research Institute uh, gave us uh, PowerPoints that are on there, Tim Standish in particular. So you have contact information, websites and things for these various ministries. So one thing you can do is take things that are compelling to you, and I'm going to give you some examples of things that are compelling to me that I understand, and some things that, are, um, that I don't understand, that I wouldn't use, but I put some of them in this uh, presentation. You choose what works for you that you can speak authoritatively about, nine reasons, and uh, here's the nine that we're going to look at. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the second law of thermodynamics, uh, what some have called the myth of stellar evolution, the inability to create life, irreducible complexity, the genetic code, the mystery of gender, the nature of the geologic column, catastrophic nature of fossils, and then living fossils. So if you're writing, taking notes, you'll see all this uh, again. Okay, so the first one is the second law of thermodynamics. Most of you remember that from uh, physics or chemistry or wherever you were first exposed to it. And the idea is that uh, order tends to go to disorder. It's the law of entropy. Things get more disorganized over time. Uh, they do not go from disorder to order unless there's some external source of uh, input. Okay, the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, these slides, I think, are in your, uh, on your CD. But um, this uh, writer says that the second law tends to increase the conviction that there's a creator who has the answer for the future destiny of man in the universe. So normally systems wind down, things don't wind up. Really, evolution, if you think about it, is totally contrary to anything that we, we see in nature, if you really think of the full implications of it. Okay, so God says he is. He's the self-existent one. Now, this I don't understand, so I wouldn't do it in a public presentation. The last uh, series I, I did was with a, uh, an earth science teacher, uh, high school teacher. Um, I trusted that he was up on some of these things, but he uh, talks about the myth of stellar evolution and uh, speaks of the whole, you know, Big Bang very interesting, you know, when you read a lot of these sources. Uh, how did the Big Bang start? What was there before the Big Bang? Well, a lot of the sources say it was a, a, a singularity, an, a unique uh, thing, and it was uh, this source here is saying it's an atom. Uh, it was the size of an atom to begin with, that all the universe came from something uh, the size of an atom that had all the mass in the universe all concentrated. So you might say, well, there's other sources that describe it differently, but the point, this is not 
um, unusual. I've seen a number of secular sources that talk about this infinitesimally small uh, mass that then, uh, or great mass in an infinitesimally small place or space. So is this, um, is this appealing? And uh, does this, you know, to a, a lay person, to even someone like yourself with scientific background, does it make sense that a great explosion with particles moving at great speed, these particles are going to get attracted to each other and form objects and galaxies? And so there, you know, all this discussion about dark energy and dark matter. How do you explain something that really doesn't make sense? And so what I'm, these are just different models of what's happening in the universe. Everyone says the universe is expanding now. What's going to happen in the future, uh, they debate. But um, this is what I like to tell people when I'm doing a seminar. I say, beware of explanations that don't make any sense because you're not smart enough. I mean, really, if someone can't explain something to you in a way that makes sense, just say, well, you know, the Big Bang happened. That's what the scientists say. And uh, again, I don't understand all the uh, stellar evolution dialogue. I'm not even very cognizant of, e of it even. But this should disturb people, okay? And uh, the science teacher I worked with who studied this a lot more uh, spoke about uh, some of the problems, the logical problems. And if you're uh, knowledgeable in this, this is a great thing to use. If you're not, if you're like me, I wouldn't do this in a seminar that I was giving but it's something that many people find compelling. Here's uh, some quotes that uh, Ed Goodman used. I think I put his material on your uh, CD. Nobody understands how star formation proceeds. It's really remarkable. Um, we don't understand how a single star forms, yet we want to understand how 10 billion stars form. So it's very easy to give these global statements about how things evolved, how stars evolved, how galaxies evolved. But um, he was sharing information with the audience how even intelligent scientists who are deeply involved in these subjects uh, can't explain them. Whether there is a better explanation, I don't know. That's like I told you in the first presentation, we don't want to do that. If I'm not knowledgeable about something, I don't want to find something that looks weak and put those quotes up and have someone who uh, is a uh, you know, physicist come up afterward and say, uh, you know, that guy or that source you cited is a lousy source. I mean, nobody believes that anymore. Um, you don't want to do something like that. So stick with things that you really understand and that you know uh, in the presentations that you make. And in fact, one of the uh, creation science researchers that I respect in our church, I was telling him about that, what we were going to be doing here, and he, uh, he was very ambivalent because um, he was saying, well, yes, we need to get this message out, but we don't want to you know, have people giving information that they don't understand and discrediting the cause. I think, I think we have to get over being worried about that. I mean, I, we have to get over being worried about it, but at the same time, we have to try to, to use scientific integrity and, and uh, just like we do in medicine. But I don't stop practicing medicine because I don't know everything, right? Or that we don't have all the answers. I mean, that would be foolish, right? But why do we have to feel that, well, I'm not an expert. I don't know everything about it. In fact, one of, one of my friends who's uh, probably one of the most knowledgeable persons I know in the field of nutrition has a PhD uh, in, in that discipline. For many years, 
did not want to do anything publicly because that individual felt how, they realized how much they didn't know. Well, do, do you see the problem? It's true we should have a humble assessment of our knowledge base, but at the same time, you've got all kinds of people in your church and in your community who you've got a, I mean, you've got a, a vastly greater understanding of science than they do, and they're just totally, you know, like a ship without any compass. They're totally lost. And so if you don't speak up and share what you know, whether it's in a Sabbath school class or in a, I would, I would encourage you to find some public forums where you can share this, whether it's a small study group or something, but take some advocacy in this area. Don't say, well, you know, I was encouraging. I heard Dr. DeRose say that the general conference leader leadership all got together and, and the vice presidents and Jan Paulson, they're all, you know, wanting to, you know, really make a stronger stand for creationism in the church. Well, that's not the answer. I'm not saying it's not important, but the answer in your local church is the advocacy that we individually take. And uh, you'd be shocked if you start getting involved with this, I'm sure, like I was. Now, granted, um, the congregation I'm in currently, we do not have a huge number of professionals there, but um, I know other congregations I've been in that had larger percentage of professionals. There were professionals who believed in theistic evolution in that congregation. So I'm just saying, take advocacy and uh, be vocal. Okay? Inability to create life. I mean, this, is, this to me is very compelling, um, that there is no... There, there's no scientific experiments, anything that actually can create life. Um, and, you know, you, this, is, this is fascinating. Dean Kenyon, um, he's one of the people interviewed in one of the Illustra Media uh, videos. Um, I mean, this guy is incredibly qualified. He actually wrote one of the textbooks on um, evolution and uh, the origin of life. PhD in biophysics from Stanford. I mean, you can see his credentials there. Um, he actually co-authored this book, Biochemical Predestination, that was really talking about the origin of life. In fact, um, some of you know the people whose names are associated with, uh, you know, the primordial soup and how this can form amino acids are Oprin and Fox. Well, Kenyon was so renowned that when they were having their, their retirement and they have, you know, these festschrifts, these uh, writers uh, that write in honor of the uh, retiring professor or whatever, um, they invited Dean Kenyon to write. So he was, he's of that caliber. He's, you know, world class on uh, origin of life stuff. Well, Dean Kenyon has now become a creationist because of... Um, dialogue that, that happened in the classroom, apparently, how he realized that, um, that it didn't hold water. The, uh, all the stuff that, he'd, that he was so immersed in, he couldn't, he was an honest scientist, and he said he just, this just, you can't put all this together. You can't actually have life form from these building blocks. Uh, another thing that you, you want to talk about in your seminars is irreducible complexity. This is often called the argument from design. And um, the, probably the most noted proponent or the one who actually coined the phrase irreducible complexity is Michael Behe, um, the presenter next door. Dwight Nelson, when he uh, did his, what was it, Net 98? 
um, quoted Behe, and uh, Behe's book had just come out back then in 98. This has now been revised and up, or it's updated with some additional material at the end. But uh, how many of you are familiar with Behe? Okay. The, the essence of, uh, of what uh, Behe is, uh, is getting at is, you know, if you talk about evolution to a layperson, it sounds like, well, it's plausible. You know, a little spot starts that's light sensitive, you know, and uh, just evolved, you know, just by mutation this happened and gave some advantage and it gradually through changes became an eye. Well, Behe's basic argument is, you know, on a large scale to a layperson that may make sense, but he's a biochemist. And he says when you actually look at the complexity of the, uh, of biological systems, it defies explanation. This irreducible complexity is actually saying that there's no selective advantage to things happening in, uh, independently. So to give you a crude example, uh, and basically he, base, B, he points out how this disproves things that Darwin himself said about his theory. But uh, the crude example that um, that Behe uses is a mousetrap. Um, I say it's crude, crude because it's very uh, simple, but here's the definition, just so you can, can see it here if you're not familiar with it. Irreducible complexity is seen in a single system which is composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function, and where the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease functioning. So what the idea is here, how would something evolve in parts? So here's the, uh, the mouse trap. And what Behe points out is, if you were to think of this as a biological system, how could a functional mouse trap evolve? In other words, if something just, you know, we're th speaking metaphorically here, but how could a, if a hammer just evolved, what would the body do to perpetuate that hammer in successive generations? Remember, the, the way the theory of evolution works, right, is you have these small changes, they somehow give some selective advantage to the organism, so it preserves that change. And they just get better, more and more of these things happen until they accumulate. Well, B, he's saying, B, this is impossible. He, and he gives example after example, whether it's blood clotting, whether it's the flagellum and the cilia, I mean, he goes through all these examples, he says there is there's no possible way that you can have all these systems just come by random mutations. You have to have all these things in place at once in order for there to be a functional system. And this simply defies any logic, any human power of logic that this could ever happen that you can have all these changes happening at once and just have a, a functional uh, cilium just suddenly, you know, appear. So he goes through a number of examples. If you haven't read his book, it's, it's very uh, instructive. Okay, let me give the um, other point for you. Behe is not a biased creationist. And I put the word biased in quotes. Um, Behe is really a, a theistic evolutionist. He believes in intelligent design. He says this, I find the idea of common descent, that all organisms share a common ancestor, fairly convincing and have no particular reason to doubt it. Uh, but he also says this, 
uh, the idea that the designer had to have made life recently, because he's arguing for intelligent design through the whole book, says the idea that the designer had to have made life recently is not a part of intelligent design theory. So you have a lot of people saying, whether it's Francis Collins or Michael Behe, they're saying, look it, this does not make sense. It doesn't fit. It's not logical. We're scientists. You have to have a designer. There has to be something more than just random uh, evolutionary processes. But they still accept the evolutionary worldview. And this is what we're dealing with in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I don't know of anyone who's saying they're an atheist. They, they would have long stopped coming to the church. But they're saying, you know, we believe this is science and we've embraced this. And that's why I spent so much time with the philosophical underpinnings. This is really critical. It's not, it's not just, well, you know, we all believe in the third angel's message and, uh, you know, we all keep keeping the Sabbath together and believe in Jesus as our Savior. So why make a big issue of this? No, it really undermines everything that we believe in. It undermines the rational basis for it. So I'm just, I like Behe because Behe is not. You know, he's a source that we can appeal to who, who's not coming from a biblical, uh, biblical worldview. And he's still saying this doesn't make any sense. I'm a PhD biochemist. It makes no sense. You, you can't say that these things just evolved. Okay, the genetic code. Uh, you've got an excellent presentation in your, uh, on your CD from Tim Standish. He's with the Geoscience Research Institute, PhD, I want to say biochemist. Is, is that right, those of you who know Tim? I think he's a biochemist. And uh, he's got a whole presentation on the genetic code and why the existence of the genetic code seems to speak of a creator. And uh, I'm not going to go through this with you, but he goes through a number of, of uh, questions, proposes a number of questions, a number of issues as to say why the genetic code seems to indicate that it was designed. If you just look at it, it does not look like something that is random, just the product of chance. And he's got a nice uh, graph that actually looks at the um, genetic code here. And the idea is that if you look at the different uh, base pairs and the amino acids that they code for, it's designed to minimize uh, the impact of mutation. So in other words, you're going to get leucine regardless of what the last amino acid is in this codon, these three, uh, uh, three base pairs. So whether it's... Uh, adenine changes to guanine, it doesn't matter. You have a mutation there, it's still going to be uh, leucine. It's going to be the amino acid it's coding for. The, the point is, this looks like it's designed to minimize the impact of mutations. It doesn't look like something that just randomly evolved. It looks very organized. And it's a, it's a nice chart showing you this organization of the genetic code. And he's got other things in that um, discussion that uh, in that presentation that you may want to use. So I've used this, try to simplify it for a lay audience, but it's just very, very uh, provocative. And all that you're doing is trying to get people to see all these different reasons why it seems that things did not just simply randomly uh, evolve. 
So let's uh, let's go next to the next uh, topic. You you have all this material, and uh, you can can look at that in more detail if you would like. The next area is the mystery of gender. This is something I don't um, I haven't studied, so I would not use it in a presentation. I've wondered about it, but I haven't written uh, haven't read what evolutionists think about the origin of gender. Uh, maybe some of you have, but it's hard to imagine for me in any kind of evolutionary model, how do you have gender? How does that evolve? Um, maybe there's some compelling arguments out there. I don't know them, but I think that's worth studying, worth, worth looking at. These are some things that uh, uh, the science teacher presented um, in our recent creation science seminar that we did. I would, like I said, I wouldn't have presented it because I don't know this literature well. How about the nature of the geologic column? Uh, to me, there's a very compelling evidence for creation. Here is this uh, diagram. I think this is from Sean Pittman's material, pretty sure. So he's got excellent stuff. I mean, all kinds of slides. And uh, his presentations are all on there, too. If you want to listen to the uh, um, you know, streaming presentation, it's, it's there on the Detecting Design website. So you have the PowerPoints. They're there, too. He updates them. But we wanted to put in one place all of these resources so you can just have that with you if you're on the road um, or if you're you know, don't have internet access and don't have whatever kind of situation you're in. You don't have to download everything, get it together. You've got a lot of things to draw from. But look at the difference between the surface of this geologic formation in the region of the Grand Canyon and, uh, and look at the underlying layers. Do you notice any difference? Yeah, if you look at the surface, there's all kinds of erosion. There's these deep furrows. There's a tremendous variation there. But if you look at the lower strata, they just look like a sandwich that you made. So how do you get that over millions of years? If this was really happening over millions of years, you would expect to have erosion, you'd expect to have these kind of things, and then built on top of it the next layer. The best explanation for the geologic column, when you really look at it, is that this is all rapid deposition. Um, I don't have anything from Walter Weith um, on the uh, CD. Some of you know his work. He's, he's got a very nice video that uh, I guess he let Sean Pittman put on his website with the turbidity currents. And turbidites, are you familiar with those? What, these are underwater currents that have debris in them that will form. And these happen. We know this is uh, observable. Uh, today, if there's a, uh, an earthquake or some cataclysmic event, a landslide, it will send underwater a, uh, tur a turbidity current. And this has debris in it, and it will make a, a layer, uh, like we see here. And uh, Walter Veith, in this video where he actually reenacts this, he shows how you can have sequential turbidites that follow one another that actually will stack up just like layers like you see in the geologic column. So it's a very compelling uh, explanation for what we see in nature. So the geologic column actually suggests uh, a flood, a global flood, rather than um, you know, millions and millions of years. The other thing I'll mention about this, you know, we've been talking about Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, there have been Adventists, even, who have tried to say that the flood was a local event. 
Um, there is absolutely no way, if you actually look at the biblical account, you look at the Hebrew, you look at anything, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I've read from a number of scholars, there's no way that you can interpret Genesis 6 to 8 as being anything but a worldwide flood. Um, catastrophic nature of fossils. So the nature of fossils also goes along with this whole um, catastrophic picture. How many of you, I, I've been told the Dinosaur National Monument, uh, the visitor center is now closed. But have any of you actually ever been there? Um, we had the privilege of visiting there some years ago. This is amazing. Um, this whole wall is dinosaur bones. It's just, it's just like a massive dinosaur graveyard. Many of the bones have been taken out, but it's, you, you, you walk in the visitor center, it's built over this rock wall. And there's just, so the question is, how do you get, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of dinosaur bones all in the same area? You know, did the dinosaurs, whenever they got sick, would they migrate to a certain area to die? No, not really, right? What, what the most compelling explanation is this was a global flood and there was transport of, um, of things into lower areas as the floodwaters receded or whatever. Um, but there's movement of these dead creatures into that, uh, that area. Um, a ninth, ex, a ninth uh, evidence for creation is what are so-called living fossils. Um, living fossils are things like the coelacanth. You know, they said this had been dead for millions of years, and then what happens? Then they pull one up out of the deep sea. Well, so what's going on? Well, several things. First of all, why would you have a deep sea creature that the fossil record seems to have no evidence of, except in the lowest levels of the geologic column? Yeah, I mean, what it fits is a flood model that these creatures that lived on the bottom of the ocean, they were covered first. So you find them in the lowest strata. Well, the other question that comes up, and I, to me, that's the first one is the most compelling argument, but the other question is, well, how could these things not change for so many millions and millions of years? Why would you still even have a creature like this? If, even if you say somehow it was just preserved, why would, and you could say, well, it's so well adapted to its niche or whatever, and that's why it's still there unchanged. But, well, why didn't it get any, why didn't the creatures at the bottom get get better and better and better. You say, well, we don't, evolutionists don't believe that. We still have simple single-cell microorganisms. Uh, they still exist. So I don't think that's as compelling an argument. Well, last thing I wanted to tell you is there's another presentation you can give based on the materials you have on the, uh, the CD. I'm just giving you some ideas of ways you can use it. So you can give an, uh, a series going through reasons why you can have confidence in the biblical account. I do do something on philosophy at the beginning of my seminars. And then the last thing uh, that you may want to do is, uh, is something that deals with uh, dealing with some of the arguments uh, that evolutionists use. And I can just give you some ideas of some things that you may want to, uh, uh, may want to use. Well, what was interesting to us is when we, the, I've only done this twice, so I'm not, you know, I'm not a great expert on this, but the first seminar we did, we advertised widely in the community um, using Christian radio. 
because we were advertising it for Christians. And we had many, apparently Christians, we didn't take you know, a survey of how people got there, uh, who came out to uh, hear the meetings. One fellow that we got well acquainted with who then actually came to the evangelistic meetings was a, uh, was a non-denominational Christian who had just had questions about the topic and, um, and ended up coming out. So there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of agitation in the world today, in the Christian world, about this subject, and people will come out for creation seminars. I know Phil Mills has actually partnered with uh, non-Adventist um, entities. To, I know he did this in Wichita. Some of you may have heard him describe it, but he had uh, ICR, the Institute for Creation Research, come out and do a series in Wichita. And he got, you know, other Christians, uh, churches involved with it, and they put this on in their community. So it's, it's of great interest if you get the word out. The last one we did, we advertised it much less widely. We did it more to our mailing list. So they were all people that already had contact with our, with our church. So there's, in your CDs, you have actually material that deal, I believe, with all of these... Um, quote, creationist problems. And, uh, you know, like the erosion of the Grand Canyon. How could we have such a deep canyon? Did, wouldn't that have to evolve over millions and millions of years? Well, evolutionists even today don't believe in uniformitarian uh, explanations. They believe in uh, catastrophic events. Sean Pittman has some very nice aerial photos that I'm, I'm pretty sure are on there that actually show you how the Grand Canyon looks like a large... Uh, even beyond the Grand Canyon, looks like a large area where there were receding floodwaters and, um, you know, explaining the Grand Canyon. Mount St. Helens, you have uh, slides about that. One of the most compelling recent examples of how a huge, uh, uh, huge canyon could be carved out in a matter of hours, literally. But if you just looked at it, you would say this, you know, was, took millions of years to form. Um, yeah, one fortieth the size of the Grand Canyon is what my wife says, so she's got a good memory. We'll trust her on that one. Okay, uh, the Yellowstone Fossil Forest this is another uh, fascinating thing. Evolutionists used to say, well, this is proof. You find these uh, fossil forests in Yellowstone that things are, you know, tens of thousands of years old because you have trees at apparently different layers, and... Um, the explanation for that is actually what we know partly from Mount St. Helens and what happened in Spirit Lake of how trees tend to deposit when, they're, when there's massive tree loss, uh, as happened with that uh, uh, volcanic eruption. Those trees end up, many of them will submerge with their roots down and will look like they were growing there. But if you have a cataclysmic environment like during the flood, you wouldn't be surprised to see trees at different levels. And uh, dendrochronology, which is the study of tree rings, uh, actually, uh, it's a kind of speculative science in some respects. There's a lot of questions about it, but some creationistic dendrochronologists say, if you look at all these trees, they all were growing at the same time. Uh, and there's other evidence too, but there's material uh, behind that. Ariel Roth, in his book, I mentioned his book earlier. Um, he's a, an expert, a world-renowned expert on coral reefs, and he shows how uh, all the coral reefs that uh, we know about uh, could have grown within 6,000 years. Uh, the Green River Varves and Ice Layers. Uh, many people say if you find any kind of layering, 
like ice layers, uh, these varves, the Green River is a large fossil formation out west. And uh, they'll say, well, you see all these layers. So these layers had to happen every year. So they count the number of layers. So they say, you know, tens of thousands of years or millions of years or whatever. And uh, there's very good research showing that, like the Green River varves, an Adventist uh, scholar actually has studied these in detail. And he finds multiple layers in a single, uh, in a fossil-bearing rock that has a fish in it. So uh, what, what it implies is that this fish skeleton or whatever was fossilized and uh, uh, had to be fossilized in a very rapid time because the bones are not disarticulated. It's still, but you see all these layers going right uh, along with the, uh, with the fish. So that means that this happened, you had multiple layers laid down in a very, very short time before the fish could even decay. So you have things like that in the, uh, in the resources, but this is another great thing to, uh, to do in a creation science seminar. Look at things that, that you understand or that are so-called arguments against creation science, and then you present that. So it's a way of kind of having a question and answer session, but yet being in charge of what questions are asked. Okay, we need to wind up here shortly, but I want to give you a little bit of, of time for any other feedback or questions or comments. So we have one back here. We'll try to uh, give you this little mic here, too. Let's use this one here. I think that's working. Okay. I've done some thinking on this subject, and at least it appears to me that too often we're trying to play science, and we end up defending our own goal line instead of attacking the opponent's goal line. The discussion of origins is by definition philosophy and not science. Where did I come from? Where am I going? What's the meaning of life? These are all the basic philosophic questions. And um, it's very clear from what uh, Dawkins says in his book that evolution is the um, story of origins for atheistic philosophy. And you see, if we talk philosophy, the problem that that our evangelical brethren have is they call uh, this uh, this evolution, they call it a religion. It's not a religion, it's a philosophy, but religion is a subset of philosophy. So if we use the term philosophy and we start there, then we catch them on equal ground. And, we, and the other thing is that we keep forgetting, we're looking at the trees and saying what beautiful trees and we don't see the forest. Mm. The forest is that when you, are, when you are using science, it cannot tell you anything about history. Because the strength of the scientific method is two things, reproducibility and direct observation. And history is neither reproducible nor is it observable. Mm -hmm. And so as we attack it on the, on the basics, then, then we put ourselves on a, on a much firmer ground, I think. And, uh, you know, I liked what you said there about the reason that why we can trust the Bible. You know, I mean, the, the Bible is because of, of prophecy. That's, that's a wonderful thing that has to be hand in glove in this situation. 
And, you know, we, we then look and say, well, you know, what are we to use as we, as we build our, our model of what's happened in the past, as we look at the world around us, are we going to use the most document, you know, the oldest, most documented, most substantiated historical document that we have from antiquity, or do we turn around and use a historical uh, um, account for which there is no historical document. You see, the historical account that yet today is like yesterday is like the day before is like the day before that for the past 4.5 billion years has no historical document to back it up. And so we're, we're just doing that. No, some very good points. You know, one of the things I'll mention that is a compelling argument that we did not talk about but just uh, comparative worldviews of origins. You know, as we speak about philosophy, if you read other origin accounts in other sources, other uh, antiquity, uh, other sources in antiquity, the Bible account stands head and shoulders above anything else. There's no, you know, battle between, you know, a sea monster that split or some cosmic egg that, ha I mean, really, I mean, it's, I, in fact, I was talking with the person uh, next to me on the plane yesterday, she was a college student. And uh, I was, she said, well, what are you doing? You know, and I was telling her about how compelling this is. I said, the Bi it just says, you know, we've got to take note of the Bible. It just, you know, every, it's the only account, ancient account, that has something that's intellectually compelling. And I was telling her as a physician, like I was telling you earlier, all the basics for a healthy lifestyle are in Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, how did that just happen? How come it makes so much sense to 21st century mind when all these other um, philosophies don't. Who had their hand up next? Is someone looking out in the back who can tell me who's next in line? Okay, you're pointing back this. How far back are you pointing, Harry? Well, someone was back. Oh, okay. Horst? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned then uh, that evolution theory undermines that death is a result of sin. And but what is about disease? I mean, if biology would prove that it knows morality, that is now, we as physicians, we can have a direct approach to our patients as showing them uh, why they are sick. Mm -hmm. I recently had a patient, he came with his left ear problems for a half a year, I'm an ENT, and I said to him that he probably has some problems with his wife or his mother. So he said, I'm a psychologist. <laughs> and then I said, well, that's very fine. You then understand me. And then he said to me, do you want to suggest that my disease or my, my dysfunction is because of a moral or ethical problem that I have? And I said, yes. <laughs> and then he said, now that I I'm against that. I cannot, cannot, I don't, don't want to accept that. Now, that's our freedom to accept it or not. But biology still proves that it is moral. And if we as physicians can prove to our patients that their disease is a direct cause of the breaking of the Ten Commandments, then uh, we have all the provings that uh, we are created. You know, it's a very interesting comment because Ellen White speaks of how important it is for physicians 
to be frank in telling their patients that something they're doing is sin. Yeah, very, very interesting, isn't it? Um, can, can we really win uh, an argument if you're just arguing back and forth? When Jesus said, go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in, I think that compulsion was the compulsion of love. So what part does love play in all of this um, debate? No, I mean, I think this is a, a very important point, and that's why I spent as much time I, as I did with the philosophy. It's not about name-calling. It's not about winning an argument. It's actually about revealing the Creator God and, uh, and that God reveals it in the context of prophecy and His redeeming work. You have a question, or are you telling me it's time? Our time is up. No, just a just a quick comment. You prefer that one? It's both. No. Okay. You got oh, both, both of them. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't know if you all went over it, but do you all know who the greatest critics against the Big Bang was originally? It was evolutionists. Do you know why? What did they believe before the Big Bang? Steady state, uniformitarianism. In other words, the world had been there all along. So when the Big Bang Theory came out, that was a great threat to evolutionary, evolutionary thinking because that hinted too close to a creator. Prior to that, every new genetic, dis every new um, discovery that was made that refuted evolution, what did they do? They just referred it, reverted back to, well, given longer time. So uh, Darwin actually, and when he first came out with this theory, said it might take about a million years to develop this type of thing. And then when we found out more about genetics and then DNA, what did it get to? About billions of years. The good thing about the Big Bang, actually there's good news about it, which is it sets an upper limit now. They can't go back any further than 4.6 billion years. And now they're stuck. And that's why they're having to go to the parallel universe theory. There's not enough chance in this one universe. So they, they get into the, the wacky theories of there must be parallel universes. You know we're speaking religion now. We're talking about faith. We're not even talking about facts. Because you can't prove that there's another parallel universe. Uh, one of the things that I, I've uh, been able to incorporate into my medical practice, which might help some of you, uh, I'm family practice uh, in Nashville, and uh, some of the churches there, the Sunday churches, have asked me to come and give lectures on diet in the Bible, God's health plan, and so I did that based on Obama's health plan, you know, God's health plan. And uh, the way I approached it was I, I show to them that the creation diet, the, the diet in the Bible, is the same as the evolutionary diet. And this has been very effective in witnessing to non-believers, non-Christians, because you can't refute it. And the way I've approached it is, first I established the fact that the evolutionary diet, if we assume we're evolutionists, who are our animal nearest kin? The monkeys, specifically the apes, right? And more specifically, the chimps. What do chimps eat? Okay. Chimps, they, they eat fruit, and they eat, 70, they eat so much fruit that they're not called carnivores, and they're not called omnivores, they're not even called herbivores, they are called frugivores. And that's, that's not a word I made up, that's actually the encyclopedia definition. They eat 70% uh, fruit, 
about 20% uh, flowers and leaves and about 1% insects. They almost never eat flesh foods except in extremely rare uh, instances. If they say it took 30 million years to evolve an ape, and we know evolution's theory is things have to move slow, right, genetically. If it took 30 million years to evolve an ape's digestive system, cholesterol metabolism system, carbohydrate metabolism system, so that this 70% fruit, 25% uh, vegetation diet is optimal, and we all know what happens when they eat McDonald's food. I'm sure you've read studies about apes eating McDonald's food, gets metabolic syndrome. <coughs> do we really think, as an evolutionist, do we really think that the very first human that evolved out of an ape, the first caveman, quote unquote, would all of a sudden need a heavy meat and cheese diet, heavy grease diet? It would fly in the face of evolution, wouldn't it? And what are, they say, what are they saying now? Every time you watch the health channel or some evening health news, when was the last time you heard them get on and say, scientists have just found a mysterious new vitamin in country ham that will help you live long? Or they found a new uh, antioxidant in fried chicken that will kill cancer. What is it always? Blueberries, the superfood, right? Pomegranate was the recent craze. A grapefruit, grape seed extract. It's not the red wine, it's the red skin, right? All the atheistic data are supporting that still uh, the same diet that the chimps are eating even to this day. So the chimps are obeying God, man is not obeying God. And that approach has been very good. And then, of course, you show creation Genesis 129, and then after the fall, the introduction of vegeta vegetables, and show that. Uh, whether you're an evolutionist or a creationist, the diet is the same. And that's been very persuasive for many patients. Um, I appreciate those very, uh, very nice remarks. I will tell you something that I think we have a problem with in, uh, in our church. I don't think it's actually biblically defensible that vegetables were added after the fall. I'll leave that for your own study. But um, many scholars believe those were cultivated plants that were added after the fall. And if you read Genesis 1:29, it speaks of every herb bearing seed. Well, all the lettuce and greens that we grow in our garden will yield seed. So I mean, I, why I mention that too, see, these kind of things, um, and we didn't talk about it, the um, Genesis 1:1. Did Genesis, did God create the heavens and the earth? Is that speaking of just our planet uh, and the, uh, the solar system? Is it speaking about all of God's creative work and is the first creation account in just one verse? And then there's a second creation account in Genesis 1, a third in Genesis 2. Um, I, I'm making very short reference to this because um, we were out of time. But the point I'm getting at is to me, it's futile to get in arguments um, with those who are most, have most in common with us. For, us. for us to have a big argument in the Adventist church over whether there were rocks uh, present on the planet before the six days of the creation week, to me, is not a hill to die on. If you think it is, my apologies. I've met some who feel it is. But um, whether you believe you know, when the earth was without form and void, that means it could have been that way for a period of time before, a long period of time, or whether you feel that had to happen in a very short time. We've got to get away, I think, from looking, you know, or whether it was fruits 
only or vegetables. These kind of things that can divide those of us that really see things very similarly, that doesn't help our cause. So we need to come together on what's clear. Well, I know some more of you had comments or questions. I'm not going to leave, but we do need to close the session. And why don't we stand and have a word of prayer as we finish. Father in heaven, this afternoon we've reflected again on you being not only our creator, but our redeemer. You're our savior. You've spoken in your word. You've shown us the truths of your character, and you've done that in such a loving way. You've given us compelling intellectual evidence and biblical prophecy that helps us to see that you're uh, really a God who is above uh, time and space in the sense that, uh, that we experience it in this life. We thank you for revealing yourself to be divine, and we thank you that you're wanting today for the messages of the three angels to go forth and that those messages are intrinsically bound up with our understanding of origins, that you want us to speak with a clear voice as your people giving that first angel's message a clear note that uh, you are the creator, you are the maker. And as we do that, Father, give us wisdom to know how to do it in such a way that is perceived as loving, not divisive within the church or, with outside, or outside of it, that is perceived as uh, being a ministry that helps people get better in touch with you as their creator inspires them with uh, greater love and appreciation for you. Thank you that we can trust you to guide us. Help each one of us who's here to know specifically what you want us to do. And as, uh, as I've made uh, a challenge for us to be more involved publicly in this sphere, uh, that means nothing. But um, the Holy Spirit, we know, can give perfect convictions. If there's some here who need to uh, be more active in the public realm in doing that, put that on their hearts, help them leave this conference uh, changed as far as their focus, at least in this small area, and make a difference in their families, communities, and churches. We thank you that we can trust you to do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.